0: Today's episode of the Hot Forward podcast is brought to you by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brewhouses, SSV Limited has got you covered. In just five short years, SSV Limited have established themselves as your go-to partner to help you grow or launch your brewery. High quality tanks, parts, brewing kit and knowledge and experience to ensure your project runs smoothly from beginning to completion. Their newly launched part shop stocks well over 1,000 essential brewing parts to ensure your brewery is kept up and running. Visit their website on www.ssvlimited.co.uk or visit them on stand 11-13 to 13 at BeerX on the 11th and 12th of March at the ACC Exhibition Centre, Liverpool. This is Nick Law and you're listening to the Hot Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. HotForward.beer is a podcast and website dedicated to the beer industry, supporting budding beer entrepreneurs by gaining insights from experienced brewers and folk within the craft beer industry. So grab a glass, pour yourself a beer, and let's get into this week's episode. Hello friends, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot Forward podcast. Having been in brewing for over 40 years, my guest today has worked at nine breweries in the UK, Australia, and Canada. He was area production director at the large Royal Brewery Moss Side for five years, producing over 3 million hectolitres of beer per annum at that site, as well as also operating Newcastle Brewery and Theekston's in Masham at the same time within what was then Scottish Courage. Prior to this, he also held jobs as general manager at the Courage Brewery in Bristol and head brewer at the Berkshire Brewery for Courage, Europe's largest brewery at the time, and also spent time as a brewer with Bass at several breweries. But master brewer, Paddy Johnson's impressive resume doesn't stop there. The first beer he ever saw being made whilst at Courage was the infamous Imperial Russian Stout. He helped set up InServe, an independent trade dispense technical service which services around 100,000 bars and pub accounts in the UK and amongst other things including being a seasoned beer judge and father to Kieran Johnson of Blackjack Brewing in Manchester, he is one of the directors of We Brew which as well as operating an 8.5 thousand hectolitre per year brewery that was designed and built by the board team has two brands the more traditionally positioned Windsor and Eaton brand producing an array of cask and bottle beers and Uprising a more craft focused brand creating imperial stouts double IPAs and the kind of beer styles we all know and love to see on keg lines. To say Paddy's knowledgeable is an understatement he is a well-seasoned veteran of the brewing industry and has been around the block So where do you start when interviewing such a well-seasoned brewer like Paddy? When we met at Manchester's Marble Brewery, who were kind enough to allow us the use of the facilities for hosting and recording this week's show, I wanted to ask about brewing from the perspective of a master brewer. And although you might be expecting some deep cuts from a conversation like this, such as the complex chemistry that occurs when infusing hops with boiling worts at certain temperatures or the effects of yeast fermentation under different pressures, It's having a knowledge base firmly rooted in the fundamentals and nailing it time and again, which sets a master brewer like Paddy apart. So I can't wait to share today's interview and episode with you. If you like the Hot 4 podcast, please follow us on social media at Hot 4 Beers and connect with us on LinkedIn. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and leave a review on iTunes. And visit hotforward.beer, where you can tap into a range of creative and business development services for your brewery and your beer business. We're here to make your beer look as good as it tastes and help you brew up a better business. So crack open a cold one, or technically should that be a one that's served at 12 degrees C? And uh, let's hop into today's episode with Paddy Johnson from WeBrew. WeBrew. today on the Hot 4 Podcast, I'm joined by Paddy Johnson of Windsor & Eton Brewery. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. Yes. So we're at Marble Brewery in Manchester. So
1: why, why, why are you not just on the outskirts of London? Well, it sounds uh, very odd, but when we set up Windsor & Eton Brewery, I, um, I live in uh, just south of Manchester, which we'll soon hear why I'm sure and I actually commute on a weekly basis down to Windsor and therefore meeting up, it was natural to meet up in Manchester. Right, so do you have like a, a
0: flat or a house down there as well? or? Do you, what, do, you, do you sleep
1: on bags of malt like the guys from Dog did? Or? <laughs> well certainly when we first got going I used to sleep at the brewery but uh, one of my business partners has got a house in Windsor and now his kids have all uh, moved on. I have a room in his house so oh. I see more of his wife than I do of my own. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit
0: about yourself and how you got into the beer industry and how you ended up at Windsor & Eaton because you've got a pretty
1: extensive CV. Yeah, I mean, this is the 42nd year of my uh, involvement with the brewing industry, so I'll try and do this as as quickly as I can. I actually um, went to university in Manchester, so from that point of view, I've sort of had long connections with the area. I graduated with a um, biology degree and the same as most students thought, what on earth am I going to do with that? (laughs) Um, Did the milk round, got offered various different jobs, but one of them was with a brewery. And of course, that made it a no-brainer. And that was with Courage uh, at the original Courage Brewery in Horsleydown next to Tower Bridge in London. So I started in 79 there. Um, worked for um, just over a year there, but quickly decided this is what I wanted to do. So in order to get qualified, I actually left to do an MSc in brewing at what was then the Birmingham Brewing School at the University of Birmingham. did that and then joined Bass M&B um, again in Birmingham at the Cape Hill Brewery, but also then worked for a period of time at the Springfield Brewery in Wolverhampton. Um, I then got um, asked to rejoin Courage so I rejoined Courage in 83 in the Bristol Brewery and then over the next whatever it was um, something like 15 years moved back and forth between Bristol and the Berkshire Brewery at Reading on the side of the M4 various different roles ended up as the general manager of the Bristol Brewery at the time of the Scottish and Newcastle takeover. And at that time, they asked me to go up and be the uh, production director at the um, Moss Side Brewery, the Royal Brewery here in Manchester. So again, back to this location. Um, worked there, um, but while I worked there, I also was asked to cover the Newcastle Brewery And the little um, jewel in the crown, the Theakstons Brewery as well in Massam. So I covered that as part of that role. So that was about 96 onwards. And then I decided I needed to not be just um, in brewing and I should look at the sales side of things. So in 2001, I moved over to the sales side of the business and what did they do with me? Well, they thought, well, this is a production guy, put him back in on technical stuff. So I ran the Scottish Courage technical services side of things uh, within operations. And that business then we floated off to form a company called InServe, which does all the technical services. To give you an idea of that, because it still staggers me, we um, we covered a 100... 1,000 accounts um, with half a million taps and a quarter of a million maintenance calls a year. Quite staggering. Um, Huge operation. In 2010, though, I thought, well, I know a bit about sales now. I know a bit about brewing. Time to do my own thing. And in 2010, I started to work on um, a brewery, my own brewery. But a very good friend of mine, Will Calvert, who lives in Windsor, said, let's do this together and this is a better place to do it. So he persuaded me that we should do that. We put all our resources together. There are actually four of us and we set up Windsor and Eton. The first brew was April 2010. There you are, that's how to uh, while away 42 years of your life.
0: Wow, oh my goodness, well done. I think, I think you need a medal just
1: for that, or
0: at least a pint. Um, I mean, how, how have you seen the beer industry changed since those early days of working at the original Courage Brewery right, right up to now?
1: Um, it's it's changed hugely, as, as you'd expect. And uh, going right the way back to some of those breweries, very much um, the... Um, traditional way of doing things but this constant pressure from the big brewers to rationalize, control costs, control the number of products and all those things so in all of those breweries I've just mentioned most uh, beer enthusiasts will recognize an awful lot of those breweries aren't there anymore mm. and that was an ongoing thing during my career and um, so becoming more and more efficient But actually, looking back on it as well, less and less interesting in the products we produce, doing more and more sort of international lager brands under strict franchise, but sort of tying up the the brewer's arms. Then, of course, the renaissance in brewing, and I really do think it has been a renaissance and why I was so keen to get back into it. So, you know, from the low point of whatever the number got down to, 80-odd breweries in the UK, to now over 2,500, and beers of absolute excellence across the country. It's been fantastic. Yeah.
0: So you're a master brewer, right? I am a master brewer, right. So obviously you're pretty well versed in the technicalities of brewing. Um, I mean, what are some of the most common mistakes you see less experienced brewers making when it comes to making and packaging beer.
1: Yeah, it depends what size the operation is, you know, and sometimes I get asked this by home brewers but just small brewers. So let's let's assume we're talking about <clears throat> just small brewers etc. It is obviously the classic basics that really matter and I think there are several things. Absolute strict adherence to micro standards and the quality, the cleanliness of people's yeast etc and then process control um, vigorously uh, defended so um, temperatures and everything else along the way. I think the other thing is people trying to run before they can walk Mm. and what I mean by that is that um, You get a lot of brewers who want to make the next absolutely unusual product using a a yeast from Norway that's never seen beer before, using some really unusual raw materials and some really unusual fruits. That's great, and there are some fantastically interesting beers out there at present. But they're great when they're done with brewers who know how to do the basics absolutely right first. And sometimes a lot of young Aspiring brewers try to do the really um, weird stuff first without knowing and and controlling the basics.
0: Yeah. So, talk talk us through the brewing process, um, for, particularly from a master brewer's point of view. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll go through the the main ingredients of of beer and look at some of the considerations that perhaps a lot of Brewers overlook. Um, Let's we'll, we'll start with liquor. Um, I mean, what, what considerations should a brewer make when it comes to the liquor?
1: Well, first of all, remember you've got very good access to information on most of this stuff. Most brewers will be using town's water, i.e., the main water supply that everyone else is drinking. It's potable, it's fit for human consumption, and you'll be able to get an absolutely detailed analysis. I think. The one that we get every year has got literally at least 100 forms of analysis on it and that's any member of the public can get that. Now it's a different matter if you're using well water and I won't go into that but there's all sorts of checks and things you have to do. But if you're using towns water get the analysis, pick out the basics and of course the most important thing it really is is the hardness level. There are lots of businesses that will advise you as to, because they want to sell you um, the uh, um, process aids to help you control the liquor. So they will give you an analysis of the liquor and also how you should treat it and follow it and repeat that analysis regularly because the, um, the water suppliers switch their water supplies sometimes quite radically. So you need to be able to know what you're dealing with and how best to treat it. So how how regularly? Well, it depends where you are. So where we are at present, the water supply is very consistent. It comes from aquifers. Uh, It's very hard, but that supply is consistently there. I remember when I brewed in Birmingham, the water supply would change according to the time of year and it would change from literally reservoirs that had water that was also supplied from motorway runoff to natural reservoir water coming from Wales, etc. And those different supplies uh, are radically different and therefore we would test the water there, you know, almost once a month Mm. and we would make sure that they informed us if they switched supply.
0: I mean, I'm pretty sure most brewers are well-versed in, quote-unquote, Burtonizing their liquor, but what are some of the more advanced techniques and practices that brewers should adopt when they're, they're treating that liquor according to beer
1: style? Okay, look, the The best thing with, with liquor is to absolutely have a, um, a, a blank sheet start because you can always add things easily. It, it's removing stuff that's difficult. So soft water is fantastic to have and there are different places in the country where you can get that you know if towns that are built on granite etc will start with a very um, uh, soft water um, where you don't have that and where you have the money to do something about it because some of these techniques to soften the water are extremely expensive and not appropriate for small brewers but there's obviously demon plants and reverse osmosis etc to strip things down Now, of course, if you're doing lagers and things like that, you want a relatively soft water. But even if you're not, if you're producing ales, etc., then you can add the salts exactly as you would require and get to where you are. But don't forget the vast majority of brewers in the country are treating their liquor according to what they've naturally got. And you can treat the liquor and get what you need to get to brew. Um, so don't despair that you can't afford that D kit. You don't need it. You can get, produced perfectly good beer without.
0: Yeah. Do you think a lot of, um, particularly the smaller brewers, kind of overlook the liquor as, yeah, you know, it's just the kind of fourth ingredient. You know, it's all, it's all about the hops and the malt and then possibly the yeast, but then it's, uh, it's just water in it. Whereas it makes them 90% of what's in the glass.
1: Absolutely. And... Um, you know it's uh, you only have to actually travel around the country and taste different water or make tea with different water from different locations to understand that water is very different from wherever it is. Um, I talked to a, a small brewer who just started up in London not that long ago and his view was any liquor treatment you're adding something that can't be natural. Well, actually, you're adding what the water would originally have had coming through the rocks, etc. So all we're talking about is getting that liquor to be the right composition for the style of beer you're producing. And if you want to produce a good Pilsner lager, you won't do it with very hard water, whatever ingredients you're going to add in terms of molten hops. Mm,
0: I guess it's historically people that brewed the style of beer according to the waters, so that's why you obviously got like IPAs from Burton upon Trent, or you know Pilsners from Pilsen, and stuff. Whereas now, you know, everyone expects these different beer styles to come from any location, right?
1: Absolutely, and you have to respect that. You know, why um, is uh, Guinness very good for making dry stouts? Why was Birmingham great for making malols, etc.? So there is a damn good reason, and if you want to produce a wide variety of different beer styles, you have to consider the liquor treatment you're going to use.
0: Yeah, so let's move on to malt then. Uh, What sort of
1: qualities should a brewer look for in their malt and their adjuncts? Right, so this is a huge question, so (laughs) I will try and be very simple with it. Look, there are things that you want from the malt from an efficiency point of view, not least of all. You're buying a raw material to make a, a wort, that you've got to do efficiently Um, so there are all sorts of measures of that and you know that can be the extract potential of the malt how well modified it is Um, don't forget by the way that if you're not milling it yourself to make absolutely certain that you're buying well ground malt because however well you mash you won't extract it if it's not been uh, crushed properly So there are all those sort of physical aspects of it but there's something even more important and that's the flavour of it and one of the things I think the big brewers in particular didn't really take on board was the importance of absolutely tasting malts and knowing what the different blends will produce and that's one of the great excitements of it so um, buying malt that gives you the performance that you need, but also the flavors you want.
0: Yep. So when it when it comes to putting a grist bill together, obviously apart from the style, obviously of of beer making. But what I mean, are there any other considerations that brewers should be thinking about? Um, you know, because obviously you think about the extract and sort of, that sort of thing. But just just maybe certain, certain techniques about how you're layering that stuff up in your, your grist case or or whatever. You know, just anything that little nuggets that maybe some brewers maybe overlook and you think oh, actually that would be really helpful
1: to know. I think um, one of the first things I'd say in making a grist bill is um, to learn to do it manually, the calculation. So there's an awful lot of gadgets out there at present that will do a recipe for you against um, colours and strength and things like that. And that's great, it's, um, and I would thoroughly recommend having them as a check of what you come out with. But there is nothing like being able to actually go back to uh, basic principles and work out exactly what you are making. Um, so knowing exactly what malts um, you're going to require to get the strength of work that you need and the colour, and then of course there's blender flavours. Having decided all that then um, when you're actually using those malts to mix them thoroughly, remember you'll have some malts that have got very uh, good diastatic power but you'll have some ingredients that are very low on that and indeed you may have some materials that have none at all and that, you know for instance let's say something like torrified wheat or something mm. like that because you want to get some head retention, you've got to get it well mixed in with the gris so The enzymes from the malt are the ones that are also doing that work. So really what I would urge all brewers to do is to make sure, because this is where a lot of the art comes in. Yes, there's some sums you do to get it right, but you look at it and go, from experience I know to tweak this a bit and tweak that. That's what I would urge all brewers to do. Yep. So when it, when it comes
0: to mashing in then, like what, what sort of things can brewers do to improve their efficiency?
1: Well, from what i previously uh, mentioned, one of the first things to do is to make absolutely certain that your malt is crushed. And you may think I've got to be in a bonnet about this, but I have, um, you need to, I, I go to breweries sometimes and look at their grist and they're complaining they've got low extracts. And I say, well, First thing you need to do is talk to your maltster about making sure he's grinding all this. So making sure that your malt is really good quality. It is um, well milled. And then don't forget to look at the wetness of the mash. Okay, the the, um, grist to liquor ratio. Um, Most brewers, small brewers will be doing this by eye. You know, that's the way that you have to do it but make sure you've actually done the checks initially that yes, I'm going to be mixing at this perfect mix for my system. Be that a louder ton, much, much um, thinner mix, or be it a uh, infusion mash where you want to get that float. Um, also I think that you can look at stand times and those mash temperatures and making sure the temperatures you're recording really are representative of the whole mix that you've got Um, and getting that balance between extract and the attenuation limit, the fermentability you're going to get from your wort so that's one of these classic brewing balancing things if I do this I'll get more extract but what I might do is get an over attenuated wort and that's where you have to learn to be able to play those games with different temperatures and different times. Then on the runoff, making sure, uh, let's talk um, infusion mashes to start with, making sure you're um, running off in a way that is maximizing, getting off those strong worts really well and taking the residual worts down to a to a gravity that maximises your extract, but you're not beginning to pull tannins and polyphenols off that you don't want. So knowing when to quit and run and say, I've got the really nice stuff, let's leave what's left behind.
0: Yeah. And can, can you talk us through some of the benefits of and drawbacks of different types of mashing methods such as like the single infusion mash tones or step mashes or decoction mashing?
1: Yeah, certainly and I mean um, the first thing to say you know we use an infusion mash tun we're doing on average about 100 barrels a week it's perfectly acceptable and we've got one of the most awarded lagers pilsner lagers in the country with Republica so don't forget that infusion mash tuns can do the majority of what you want purely because of the great quality that malt uh, has in the UK now so if you take an infusion mash it's a very simple process it is um, obviously mashing into that one vessel and then using that same vessel to separate the wort from the grist so advantages well it's a relatively low-cost option to purchase it it is remarkably low in its maintenance requirements there's no moving parts mm. or engines or anything to get there and you can produce a wide variety of different styles of uh, beers from that and um, you won't get extracts of 98 percent um, but nevertheless you know a lot of brewers uh, would say "Yep, yeah, but you're taking the best of the worts out and you get really nice quality work from them. Now if you then go on to mash mixers and lauters well you'll get better extract there's no doubt about that you'll be able to play some games with temperature profiles a lot more easily than it's possible to do with an infusion mash but don't forget that some of these things aren't strictly necessary with today's well-modified malt but you can do that and that could be part of your story. It's easier to automate but then again our customers want to see us making the beer by hand (coughs) so you know you again you have to weigh up efficiency versus being seen to be craft brewing. If we go from that then up to um, decoction mashes um, very unusual for the UK a system devised for undermodified modified malt uh, in Europe originally, not necessary, but if you're a purist and want to reduce the beer in exactly that way, that is a possibility. Do you and think oh, people
0: can tell the difference? <coughs>
1: um, no. Okay, to be quite honest, I think, um, and if they can, you can do things about it. So some of the classic decoction mash beers where that have a slight sort of honey type character that is from the caramelization of the mash in that second boiling vessel you can produce that on a small scale and add it back in so it's not something that's necessary but i've got every respect for people who want to do that but you have to decide what it is you're trying to achieve And then of course what you're beginning to see now um, is right up to mash filters I see particularly in the States a lot of people a lot of small craft brewers putting in mash filters again really great for efficiency less of a romantic uh, way of doing things and you've got to be careful in that efficiency you aren't pulling out things from the malt that actually you really don't want in the final wort. Mm.
0: Just for anyone listening, that's like, what's a mash filter, just give a brief overview.
1: So you'll make a a fairly thin mash, a fairly fluid mash, but you'll then pump it into a huge plate and frame filter that has sheets and each of those chambers, therefore the wort, because it's pumped in at very high pressure, um, probably around about 100 PSI and above, the wort is squeezed, it's forced through those cloths and you can then even um, sparge through them. You pump water through to extract the last bits. You can even squeeze the individual chambers to get the last out. You get fantastic extracts, but as I say, are you also extracting stuff that you really don't want to extract?
0: Yeah. So right, let's, let's move on to hops then. Um, so. For, for, for many brewers and um, beer drinkers like hop, hops these days are often the star of the show um, so you know what, what are some of the key considerations a brewer should be making when it comes to sourcing and storing their hops and creating a, a well-balanced beer um, or at least a beer that's you know has the intended hop character thereafter without it being too bitter um,
1: okay well let's let's start at the beginning and and one of the things here again is it depends what you're trying to achieve there are brewers who will literally every different batch of beer will have a different recipe etc so they're less tied in to definite supply of hops etc but in answering this I'm going to assume that you want to produce a consistent beer again and again Mm. so the first thing is to make sure you are ensuring you've got the supply of that hop that is so important for the flavour of your beer so you're forward purchasing And those hops are set aside for you, stored in ideal conditions. Um, If you do need to move them into the brewery, you're keeping them cool. You're keeping oxygen away from them. Every time you add hops into the copper and there's some left, you reseal that bag and you keep it cool. This is a product that goes off quickly. It won't, it won't rot but it will lose the flavour the magic that you're trying to to make and so therefore make sure you know what it is you want you're forward purchasing you haven't designed a fantastic new beer with a hop that no one's ever heard of before and then you can't get it so you've forward planned by the way the reverse of that is you've not bought so damn much of it that If, therefore, your sales don't match what you were hoping for, you're left with a (laughs) hop that you've got to then use up, okay? But that's, that's, I think, the most important thing about creating it. And then if I move on with hops, or if you like, through the process, remember all the different stages you can use the hops. So, bittering, straight off, consider what type of hop you want for that, what it is you're trying to achieve, so having a massive amount of um, essential oils within it is, in my opinion, a complete waste of time. You're just going to boil all that off. You want pure alpha acid, I summarized alpha acid from that process. Then, of course, you can be starting to add later hops that will give you some different character. Um, in our case, we not only late hop, But we also use a hop back. So we're getting a lot of late hop character into the beer. And then, of course, dry hopping uh, with pellets in the vessel as well. So lots of different techniques you can use to draw different things from your hops and making sure you've got the appropriate hop for for what you're trying to achieve at that point in the process.
0: For brewers that don't have a hop back, you know, that they're the quite small, you yeah. know, um, whether it's a brew pub or, or whatever, you know. Um, I mean, what what can they do to get that kind of really nice hoppy flavour and aroma at the end of a boil? And particularly thinking about things like um, isomerisation, because you're still gonna get a good degree of isomerisation, even at like 90 degrees C. Um, so, you know, what, what can they do if you don't have the access to the necessary equipment to get all those delicate flavours?
1: Yeah I mean there's a number of things here so as I say we, we late hop and use a hop back because the fashion for the amount of hop flavour has grown so much so everyone can late hop and of course they can late hop into copper or if they have a copper whirlpool into that but also because of the fear of I isomari- isomerizing some of those hops where you don't really necessarily need it at this stage and also the loss of hop aroma through evaporation lots of brewers are now taking the temperature of their wort down to around about 80 85 degrees c before adding the late hop then of course what i would say is you need to time the extraction perfectly the perfect amount of time to maximize the amount of oil in the wort but not too long where you'll start to lose it and everyone's piece of kit will differ with that.
0: Yeah, so how, how can a brewer work that out?
1: Well, sadly, measuring um, the amount of hop oil, not isomerized not hop, but the amount of uh, essential oil, etc. In, in the wort is relatively difficult. Um, and therefore, this is one of the areas that actually in a nice way is probably still down to personal um, flavour and measurement, mm. etc. And whenever we do a change of process like this, we just repeatedly taste and taste and taste with as many people as possible and then say, yes, that appears to be the right point at which you should add them. Do you think that's
0: why, with all this trend-driven beer, where it's like we've got to smash out a new beer, every, every time it's got to be new and get those sales and so on, do you think that's that? there's a, a real danger in that for the beer industry? Because actually, you know, I mean, I've I've heard it said that uh, anyone can brew a beer, but it takes a real masterful brewer to, to replicate that beer again and again um, to, the, to the same exact standards. And do you think by um, not developing these habits and, you know, spending the time sensor- from a sensory point of view, analysing that beer and, and what you've done in that process, do you think we're in danger of losing that?
1: Um, I think... I think some brewers are in danger of losing it, because if you brew something different every time, you can't really do that um, um, perfecting a beer and then keeping on top of it. And that can hide some um, uh, poorer practices, if you like, but the brewery is very interesting, it's always doing something new. From a brewer's point of view, look, the the admiration is for something that's been really well crafted and fine-tuned and then consistently produced. And ironically as well, when I talk to a lot of uh, non-brewers, they'll say, oh, such and such a beer is fantastic. It's so full of flavor. It's really dark and rich and hoppy and everything else. That's such a fantastic achievement for the brewer. And it is. But let me tell you, the brewers will always go, This guy has produced a 4% pilsner lager. He's produced something that is incredibly difficult to do. It's got flavor, but it's using really light malts and very subtle um, hopping regimes. And he's doing it consistently. You know, the old story of um, producing something like that is like running down the beach naked. There's nowhere to hide. People must understand that from a brewer's point of view, often the skill is that really fine-tuned stuff. May not be the beer that necessarily you want to spend drinking all evening, but you have to admire people that can really get that right consistently.
0: Yeah. Just before we look at yeast and fermentation, are, are there any other factors and considerations that a brewer should be making when it comes to the composition of their work that we've not covered yet?
1: No, I think that, um, look, um, you don't make a wort and put yeast in and then walk away from it. Um, the yeast is doing a fantastic job for you, but it needs help and control limits, etc. You've got to be thinking about oxygen levels in your wort. You don't know, if you're a small operation, you don't necessarily need to measure it and this that and the other, but you need to be aware of its importance. We're talking hot side all right. And, and we're talking. Well, different people will do different things. So yes, I think um, uh, we would say on the hot side, so it gets well broken in, and so you've got no concerns about um, the uh, cont- any contamination through that line. But the point is, you definitely need a level of oxygen to keep your yeast healthy. That may be naturally in there because of your method of filling the fermenting vessel. But if it's not, and you're reusing yeast consistently, you need to be thinking about that. Um, Lots of people use uh, yeast aids, yeast food if Mm. you like. But in most operations, in my experience, if you're using malt, good malt etc. as your major source, it's not something you should need too much of because all of the nutrients should be there within your um, uh, raw materials. That's only really comes in if you're using very high levels of adjunct or, um, and in particular sugars. So all of those things are important. Lots and lots of debate about where you should add things like fruit and that. Do you do it into the copper at the end of the boil? Or do you do it into the fermentation vessel? I definitely see the trend moving towards late additions so that you're not losing a lot of the aroma compounds that you get from the fruits, etc. So people tend to be moving towards later additions of unusual flavours. Yeah.
0: so just just on that fruit issue, because like I said, there are lots of brewers that are using fruits and these, these weird and wonderful flavours, but then on the other side, you, you see some cans coming back because they've exploded, because of all the residual sugars. I mean, when you're dealing with fruit, you're dealing with such a an unknown quantity sometimes, like, how do you account for those kind of things, the amount of sugars that you're going to get um, through that secondary fermentation impact or, or, or what, like, how do you work all that stuff out?
1: Well, the way we do it, and I say, different people have different ways of doing it, there's, there's several things to take into consideration. We would always want to fully ferment if we're going into a a product that is going into something like can or bottle, bottle conditioned, etc. We would want to fully ferment in the brewery. We're then totally in control. We know exactly the point we've reached and then we can add sugar to complete that secondary fermentation. It can be done in a very controlled way. The other thing is, don't forget with a lot of these problems that people have experienced, It's not only because of not controlling the sugar level, right, because of whatever they've added. They've also, in most of the cases I've sort of read about or talked to people about, they've not thought about the yeast that they're using. So if they've got a mixture of yeast and they have one yeast that is much more aggressive than the other one, then what they thought was a reasonable level of sugar will actually now be an excess of sugar because of that uh, more aggressive yeast that they put into it. So again we would always try and control as much as we can within the brewery because then we are masters of our destiny. When it leaves our brewery gate then we need to be sure and confident that we've got the right levels. Yeah. So when should
0: a brewer add another yeast into their brew house because um, obviously a lot of brewers used like wet yeast that like a house strain and it you know th- they're pretty au fait with how it performs and handles but there are certain beer styles that it doesn't particularly suit like um, so when should they think about doing that should they just go for a dried yeast that they can just pitch and once and kind of forget about it or
1: okay well i think that um The whole thing about handling yeasts is a a key thing and again it comes down to what equipment you can afford and what you're trying to achieve. At the very basic level uh, again brewers can um, produce very good beer consistently without having yeast propagation vessels and storage tanks and everything else. So what are the considerations of the numbers of yeast? Again if you get a lot of home brewers they're often wanting to produce something with all these different yeasts etc in my experience most of the ale styles can be produced with very little variation of yeast styles actually most of the yeasts are interchangeable so you don't want to make life more complex just for the sake of it And by all means, do trials of trialing two different ale yeasts and see can you really pick out the differences of those Mm. or is the difference for another reason. Now, you of course will want to have different yeasts if you're producing a really wide variety of products. So if you want to produce a lager, well, I'm afraid I think you'll need to get yourself a very good lager strain though most people would be surprised to know that one or two of the lagers uh, in the UK that are highly rated don't use a true um, lager yeast. So again, be very careful not to assume that all of the character is coming from the yeast. So pick out yeast strains that you need for specific types and styles of beer. Those you've got to do differently but don't overcomplicate the world. Keep it as simple as you can.
0: Yeah, there was one brewery I visited in London um, where they gave me their lager. It was really, really, really nice. And he said, oh, get, you know, guess what strain of yeast that is? I'm like, oh, it's obviously some kind of lager yeast. He was like, it's not Nottingham ale yeast, but it's- just fermented really low temperature. I was gobsmacked, utterly.
1: Absolutely, and that's there are a number of examples of that. In our own case, we went to the trouble of um, getting hold of a yeast from Prague, which we now keep under liquid nitrogen and everything else. We're really proud of it. We know that the beer we're producing is medal winning. It does so every year, but every now and then I think, Pff, I wonder if we really did need to do this. <laughs> now, having got it, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna change it, but it is amazing what you can get away with. with
0: yeah, yeast. I think it's safe to say we've, we've all been in those circumstances where a beer's not fermented or turn out as we'd, we'd hoped it would. I mean, what sort of flaws should brewers be looking out for in their beers? I know, I know that's a podcast in and of yeah. itself, but a-
1: absolutely huge. area. The first thing, just coming back to, to what you said about the beers not fermenting right, etc. We have a, a mantra at um, at Windsor and Eton. If you've got a problem in fermentation, you've got to know about it really early. There is a huge temptation to look at a fermentation that appears to be a little bit slow starting and, oh, don't worry, it'll be okay by Wednesday. Let's just leave it and see what happens. And we have this thing that if you've got a slow fermentation, you hit it hard and you hit it fast. And what do I mean by that? Well, you you know, what are the things that you can help? Well, you can help with more yeast, more vital yeast, yeast that's in a better condition, presumably than you first added. You may be able to adjust the temperature, give it a give it the best circumstances that you can. So if, if it's struggling to reach top heat, give it a help. Um, do you need to add very early on, and it's got to be very early on, but do you give it some more oxygen in the vessel? So you're giving it some more energy, etc. And even if you're really worried about it, does it need some more yeast food? So One thing I've learned over the years, if you've got a problem in fermentation vessel, it's best addressed early rather than when it really has got stuck. Now then, flavours and things, what to look out for? Well, Nick, what is there not to look out for? It's absolutely everything from um, infections to off flavours and all the different reasons for that. And there's only one way to do this. You've got to learn what process conditions cause what flavors so if you've got that flavor and a set of people that are able to identify it you're able to look at your process and know that's where it's likely to be what do we need to do to get this sorted
0: yeah i brewed a beer before christmas and um pitched it into the fermenter right of yeast, etc etc um but i i didn't <laughs> rookie era didn't turn the temperature control on and rather than it being too hot it was it sat at like 17.5 and i was so busy i was just like I'll, I'll, I'll get around to like getting the heater belt i mean we're talking like 100 liter things it's just it's quite a big belt and stuff to get out i was like i'll, I'll get it out you know later today and then left it for a day and then got it out and put it on and I can tell in tasting that beer now that um, some of the flavor compounds, like an, I think it's like acetaldehyde, that kind of green appley type flavor. Yeah. Uh, as you know, the damage was done by that point, and because I mean I read somewhere that um, a lot of those flavor compounds are made within—is it like the first forty-eight hours of, of beer
1: of beer fermentation? Absolutely, and again, this comes back to what I was saying there. For if you've got a problem, identify it quickly and deal with it quickly, and even in large, you know. There won't be a brewer in the country that hasn't had some sort of uh, process fault with a fermenter where it's crash-cooled when it shouldn't have done. (laughs) So what do you do about it? Do you sit sit on your hands and go, well, eventually it'll get there? No, get it sorted. Well, how am I going to do that? Well, your vessel is surrounded by a heat exchanger jacket, take the glycol out of it and put hot water around it give the yeast a chance, get going. And the same comes to, to home brewing. If something's gone wrong, get it corrected quickly.
0: Yeah, I was kind of kicking myself afterwards for such a rookie error. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, we've all been there. Yeah, um, so just, j- just the last question uh, before we move on to some more gen- general brewer type questions and a bit more about um, Windsor & Eaton. Um, when should a brewer dump a batch?
1: <laughs> um, well, I think to be, to be very clear, um, if he's produced some beer that is that he's not proud to drink um, and um, plus or minus whether the um, public can spot it, etc. Then you've got to dump it. There's, mm. there's no choice. And compromising is, always leads to a, a reduction in your consumer's confidence in what you do and that particular beer. Over 10 years, we've um, lost two or, and I think it's actually three batches. Interestingly, by the way, two of those were in the lager. That comes back to the point I was making earlier. that The sort of things that are noticeable are so much more noticeable in beers like lagers. So that you have to be even more careful. But... You know the beer's got to come first your reputation is totally based on that the interesting thing by the way again some advice for small brewers is get a wide number of people to taste it everybody tastes beer differently they have different sensitivities to different products you may think there's not a problem but there may be that something that you're not sensitive to one of your people comes to you and says this beer's not quite right Well, check it out. The fact that you can't taste it may not be true of the general population. Absolutely. What are some of the ways brewers can add to their technical knowledge, especially if they aspire to
0: be a master brewer?
1: Okay, well, there's a number of um, exams, so formal systems and informal systems. Um, if I just quickly go through some of the formal ones, and, and again, there's a myriad of different um, qualifications, etc. But the general qualifications are um, generally run by the IBD, the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. So they have a General Certificate of Brewing, GCB, a Diploma of Brewing, which is a degree level, and then ultimately the Master Brewer and you can go through those and nowadays uh, those courses are available to um, learn directly off um, the internet and you'll be taken through a course etc. However as we do it uh, at Windsor we've got two candidates this year doing Diploma Paper 2, we actually have tutorials for them because the best will in the world learning something off a internet site you often want to ask someone, Have I understood this correctly? Now, over and above that um, uh, technical training, etc., um, there are lots of other courses that people can go to. And don't forget as well the absolutely massive importance of visiting breweries, talking to brewers, seeing the different ways that people tackle the same problems and learning what's right for your operation. And brewing will never be a pure textbook uh, skill. Likewise, by the way, I think that the really experienced non-technical brewers, there's always a time then when you want to go back to your textbook. So getting that blend of really good experience from a wide variety, but also a backbone of technical knowledge, and a network of people. I still, after 42 years, ring people every now and then and say, "Have you ever seen this problem before? <laughs> How did you get out of it, etc." So use your full network, etc. And ultimately, yes, becoming a master brewer is that a qualification worth having? That one is really around um, your experience. So they're testing: have you seen? Have you commissioned a canning line? have you built a brewery and if you haven't have you therefore gone to the trouble of really learning what works in doing that etc the master brewer qualification is all about experience and and by the way exams are more friendly than than they were back in the day when i did the master brewer qualification we did six three-hour exams in three days and if you failed any one of those exams, you had to sit them all again next year. Thank God the world is not like that now. Wow. So <laughs> it is it is much more user-friendly now. And that qualification and the diploma and the GCB will all help your employability.
0: Yeah. So t- tell us about WeBrew then, because obviously as a master brewer, you've, you've helped set that up. Um, I mean, tell us about the brewery, and, and you've got two different brands under that Correct. business as well. So, um, why don't you talk us through how being a master brewer has helped you set that up, and maybe some of the challenges you found maybe that you didn't expect is setting up a brewery of your own rather than working for somebody else?
1: Okay, so Windsor and Eaton, we we literally were planning it uh in October 2009, and the first brew was in April, 2010. We wanted, and and at that time, it's probably worth reflecting back because it seems a long time ago, but there were 650 breweries in the UK. We thought probably too many, which is amusing (laughs) now there's two and a half thousand. Um, But we knew we were building a brewery in Windsor. We knew that we wanted to be an interesting brewery but also one that people absolutely were able to say that's that brewery uh, produces consistent beer. So I've not seen that particular beer before, but I know it will be really consistently yep. good. So we put in, uh, as everyone is, constrained by the amount of money they've got. You know, if you've got a million quid, you can have a lot more fun than if you've got 200,000 or whatever. So we put in a brewery that was uh, very maintainable and very simple to operate. And then, and when we first started, it really was the, th- the four of us, uh, the directors of the business doing everything from brewing to distributing to selling, everything we did ourselves. Now, very quickly, we managed to grow enough that we could start employing people. And, we started with three single brew fermenters 17 barrels we've now got 13 fermenters six of which are double size. so we've gone from that three if you like to the equivalent of 19 we're now doing um, about 100 uh, brewers barrels a week um, uh, over the year on average, so it's times you know hundred and fifty or something, and at times less. Um, we're doing cask, which is still the biggest single package form, but for instance, keg is growing at about twenty five percent a year and is now a very significant element, driven by in particular by that Republic Lager and um, some of the uprising brands. Um, we're doing some canning and uh, quite a bit of bottling still so a wide variety and it, it, one of the things we all laugh about is when we first set up the brewery we said well ideally uh, we'd like to be you know something that produces very few brands but they're sold everywhere in the country as I sit here and talk to you now in cask we've probably got about eight brands available in keg six or seven in bottle nine or ten, in K in in um, can again another set so huge amount of variety and I never saw that coming and being needed. Now about the double brand we have Windsor and Eaton. It's the way we try to describe Windsor and Eaton. What we're trying to achieve is to be best in class. If I buy a Black IPA and it's from Windsor and Eaton, I should know I'm getting a really good black IPA. If I'm buying a Best Bitter, the same thing applies. If I'm buying a Lager, the same thing applies. What we found uh, very early on was the whole new craft beer scene was actually driving a very different style of drinking and in very different formats. And we struggled to sell into that because what we heard again and again in bars is look, really like your beer, but actually it's, it's the sort of beer that my dad drinks or whatever. And in this bar, we need something that's very different from that, that is uh, seen as very different, that's very innovative, that's very young, etc. So we decided to not try and break that, but to, to create a whole new brand around it. And that's called Uprising. And the way we try to describe Uprising beers is wow. Well. We want people to take that first sip, to turn to their friends and say, wow, so what are we doing there? Well, yes, we have West Coast IPAs. Yes, we have um, New England IPAs. We'll produce beers that um, one of them, Marula Matata, is using a fruit from Africa that we fly over to produce a really milky New England IPA. Mm. We want beers that make people rock back on their heels and go, crikey, this this is something really to talk about.
0: Yeah. Do you think that... Um because this this often comes up quite a lot in conversations, either through this podcast or just when I'm talking to people in the industry, that it's it's kind of like the industry is kind of splitting into two. You've got the more quote unquote traditional brands, and then you've got the like say the the newer craft type brands. But in some ways, it's that's quite sad because beer is beer, and why why should a best bitter be any the lesser thought of than a West Coast IPA just because it has a an image problem, so to speak. I mean, do you you think brewers have got to work really hard at bringing those things back together?
1: Absolutely. So if you take our tap bar at the brewery, um, we have some people that will be there because they just want uprising brands. We have some people that want to be there because they'll just want a a cask beer from Mm. internet. But the majority of people drink both. And there are times when it's right to have a um, white riot, uh, an uprising beer that is wow and really sort of refreshing citrus and everything else. So a white pale ale. But they'll also be chatting to someone who's having a guardsman best bitter. And both those people will change their beers according to the circumstances they're in. And we have to be careful not to create a whole new sort of snobbery and problem that actually we've been working for years to try and take away the idea that, you know, the the camera argument that the only good beer is cast beer. Thankfully we've got through that. There's a real danger of creating a new snobbery that the only good beer is craft beer and unless it's got five tonnes of hops in it and is cloudy and this that and the other then that can't be good either. So one of the things we strive is to make sure that people try all the different styles of beer and they're interchangeable and they understand when when is it right to drink this type, when is it right mm. to drink that type. I mean, do, do you
0: see that happening with cans versus bottles? Because I've got a friend who runs a, a beer shop in Sheffield. I mean, he's been going about five years, you know, and he says like when he first started, it was, it was all bottles everywhere. Now... Um, you know, unless it's more traditional styles, bottles just don't sell as well. And it, it might be absolutely A1 beer, but because it's not in a can, then a lot of these consumers don't want to know and they'll just overlook it. I mean, how much of a problem do you see that being?
1: Well, it, it, it's totally a problem because it's it's about fashion. There is a, there is a view that cans are better than bottles. Actually, you talk to most experienced brewers who have been through this cycle. That's not particularly true. Both glass and can have different advantages and disadvantages. And if you fill a can badly, it's far worse than even filling a bottle badly, I would argue. Um, The problem is this thing that um, I've got to be seen drinking it in this way because that's what the fashion is and everything else is bad and that's what I'm against. There's really good beer in can, we do beer in can, we did some can-conditioned beer for example. But the idea that one is good and everything else is bad and if you want to sell in a craft bar it has to be in a can or whatever, I think I'm against. Cans are very good for being, you know, for being able to take out for all of those reasons, but a really good bottle of beer at home, where you're not worried about breakage and this, that, and the other, um, can be absolutely excellent. So, I'm all for diversity in beers and in the package types, and people taking the best of each style. So, for brewers out there
0: listening to this, of which I would imagine there are lots, they don't. A lot of brewers don't have canning lines. Um, so when should they decide actually we should either well maybe not we'll not get up to buying a canning line and commissioning their own canning line for timing we'll, we'll look at when should we get someone into can like a mobile canner to come in and, and can the beer which again if it's done well great if not it can present a lot of problems versus well actually it's easier to self-bottle um and do bottling in-house and w- when should they decide which is the right format for that beer
1: um, if only we knew that. I think <laughs> I think the issue is that all brewers at the end of the day are running a business and they've got to be able to sell their product. Now you want to try and lead the marketplace. You want to try and um, be seen to be doing things that people will follow you rather than just responding to the marketplace. But at the end of the day you've got to make sure you're producing something that will sell to your particular market as i say now you don't have to put in a bottle line you don't have to put in a can line there are lots of steps for you to test the marketplace you can do things on a small scale and as you say you can bring um, some uh, contract packaging onto your site etc to test that marketplace do i have the necessary sales the necessary turnover to keep my product good quality Mm. because of course there's no point starting a new product not having enough sales that then ultimately you've got a bad product again that will kill your sales so that's why I said if only we'll definitely new I think our view is you keep a foot in all of the camps you push and those that are going really well you continue to explore and those that aren't, you, you're you willing to back away from it. Um, and don't be afraid to um, keep going with some traditional things that may not seem that sexy but are a damn good solid volume. But also don't be afraid to try things that are really off the wall and see where that takes your business.
0: So how, how do you envision the future of the beer industry over the next five years? I know it's like looking at your crystal ball.
1: <laughs> I think, look... Th- with these things, it's, um, it's always difficult. If I look back 10 years ago, would I see it as it is at present? But I think there are some themes that are beginning to happen that will only continue in the next five years. So I think that um, craft brewers will increasingly diversify and, or, and split into two main sort of groups. Some that are really big and sort of national distribution. They may or may not be owned by national stroke international brands as well. And by the way, all the problems that that causes. But nevertheless, they're there and I think that will continue. To then the smaller craft brewers that will increasingly find it difficult to compete with those guys. But where they can really do well is having local niche markets and therefore those brewers will continue to develop as not only um, selling beer onto the uh, free market but also selling beer through their own retail outlets. We now have a tap bar, craft bar and an art centre, um, Our flagship pub, we're opening a second pub in about a week's time. We also have 25% in a local community pub. You can see what's happening with Windsor and Eton. And I think that type of model is going to become bigger and bigger. And it's not far off what's been happening in the States.
0: So, just talking about like localization, uh, you you were one of the original nine brewers to belong to the London Brewers Alliance, which now has over 100 members. Um, why do you think it's important that London has a group of brewers who belong to the same organization, and how does being a part of that group help?
1: Okay, well, the the LBA, as as we call it, has been fantastic over the last 10 years, and it's it's it started literally at the time we were starting. So as we've grown, so the LBA has grown. And what is it good for? It's good for fantastic support amongst the brewers for each other. So on that very first meeting, we had our first beer in fermenter, but didn't have a particular saccharometer that we wanted. Next day, someone was at our door with that saccharometer and that support and camaraderie ship, if that's a real word, amongst brewers, is key to the LBA and fortunately is just absolutely rife in this industry it is a fantastically friendly and self-supporting industry and the LBA sort of uh, makes that happen amongst some local people so it's been great for that it's been great for trying to push through um, technical advances So we have a membership now, we can therefore start to organize courses which we do, organize ways of brewers getting to see other breweries and experience them and also accessing each other's experienced brewers. So and also actually acting as a focus point for we are London, we've got all these breweries, we've got these great beers London is the capital of brewing in the world. That's what we passionately believe and the LBA is helping us to drive that and make it happen. So I think the LBA is really important. When we set it up, we actually looked at a couple of other organizations. There was the one in the Peak District, for example, and do I, I would advocate lots of these types of organization because brewers can help each other and help the consumers understand what's great about brewing in their area.
0: So do you, do you think other areas in the country um, should form groups, or should they just join SEBA and attend their local meetings? I mean, what, what, what's the difference?
1: Well, I think, you know, is more of a, of a national body. It acts on behalf of the independent brewers on um, uh, access to trade routes, you know, with the large pub chains, it acts as a lobbying government etc it's a much bigger organization so although it has local structures it's not geared up just to be very locally based so i think the lba adds something completely different to the local SIBA structure something that can work hand in hand at present in london for example we're going to do a joint lba and ciba southeast region beer festival and the winners of that were therefore going to the SIBA national thing. So the two organizations can work hand in hand, but they're doing slightly different things. And should other people do it, look, it's it's down to those brewers, but I would absolutely recommend it. But mm. That's down to them. Yeah.
0: So final question before we tie up then, what, what one piece of advice would you give to another brewer looking to get ahead in their brewing career?
1: okay well there's an enormous amount of breweries now and there is also an enormous number of brewers and therefore the if you like the difficulty in progressing your career is is in some ways more acute than it's ever been even though there's lots of breweries to trial things out i think there are two main strands that i would uh, advocate to to younger brewers first of all Um, do look at getting some formal training. Now, I'm sounding very boring and I'm sounding very old in this, but there are times when in your career you will come across things that you'll be really grateful that you know the questions to ask and you know where to find the answers. That's the most important thing of the training, not necessarily knowing all the answers, but knowing the questions to ask. The second thing about that is experience do move your career around so that you see uh, not only the brewery that you're currently working in but you've seen different breweries and this point I was saying earlier about brewers solve problems in different ways there's not necessarily one right way to do it so having experienced that and knowing the next step so when your brewery wants to put in a bulk um, CO2 plant, you've seen one, you've worked on it, you know the design features that are critical, you're able to do it. So get yourself experience, not necessarily through um, having to move job every three years, it could just be that you spend a lot of time going round breweries and talking to different brewers, but have that blend of experienced and Backup that can get you there.
0: Amazing, bro. Well, thanks Sabine, for being on the podcast today, Paddy. How, how can people try your beers or connect with you? Or?
1: Okay, well, our beers are uh, available um, throughout the southeast in London, but in particular, come to the brewery. We we absolutely welcome people into Windsor. Um, s- spend a whole day. Do the important bit at the brewery. If you need to have something to fill your time in the afternoon, there's one or two other things in Windsor. But come down to the brewery. We've got a tap bar. It's open every day. Um, If you're a brewer and coming down, get in touch with me. We like to show people around, but I can give you a more uh, detailed look around, etc. And as I was saying earlier, this is a really friendly industry. So get in touch with us. That's via a website. But also uh, people can email me, paddy.johnson at webrew.co.uk. Come and see us. Come and have a chat. Tell me what you know, and hopefully I'll be able to share what we know.
0: Amazing. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much.
1: Pleasure. Thanks a lot.
0: Today's episode of the Hot Forward podcast is brought to you by SSV Limited. From tanks to full brew houses, SSV Limited has got you covered. In just five short years, SSV Limited have established themselves as your go-to partner to help you grow or launch your brewery. High-quality tanks, parts, brewing kit, and knowledge and experience to ensure your project runs smoothly from beginning to completion. Their newly launched part shop stocks well over 1,000 essential brewing parts to ensure your brewery is kept up and running. Visit their website on www.ssvlimited.co.uk or visit them on stand 11 to 13 at BRX on the 11th and 12th of March at the ACC Exhibition Centre, Liverpool. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Forward podcast this week. Don't forget we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. So hit the subscribe button for more insights into the beer industry. Connect with us at hotforward.beer or through our social media channels at Hot Forward Beers. Until next time, cheers.